Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, September 19th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back the founder and former president of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas, Keith Kelleher. The Ben Jarofsky Show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, any questions you've got, if it's about Chicago or someone from Chicago, head to ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Labor Pains Tuesday. And here's why. Because it's Tuesday, and my mind is overrun, as I just told my distinguished guest, Keith Kelleher, with all kinds of labor news. It seems like I really have been cramming for a test. You know what I mean? It's just like, just there's so much in the news in terms of labors, unions, negotiation strategies, long-term objectives, as opposed to short-term objectives for unions as they deal with capital. Nothing's changed since Karl Marx in the 19th century, ladies and gentlemen. It's still a battle between capital and labor. He told us all that. (laughs) Elon Musk agrees with him. He's just done a different side. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, three points I want to make before I bring on the distinguished Keith Kelleher. Number one, Donald Trump is slick. Can we just say that? Donald Trump is slick. (laughs) We're going to get to take the deep dive with Keith in this one. But Donald Trump, this has got to be one of the slickest moves I've ever seen. So Donald Trump uh, announced that he will not participate in the Republican debate next uh, week, which all we, we all knew he was going to opt out of that one. He was just looking for an excuse or an out. Instead, he's going to convene some kind of a, a TV show featuring labor, uh, I guess, union member. Who knows who's going to be invited to that thing? I'm sure you have to pass some kind of test to get in on it, like you have to support MAGA and Donald Trump to get in it. Uh, but he's showing his support uh, for the striking UAW workers by what attacking their president, attacking their union, and essentially undercutting whatever they're trying to do. I'm, I'm t- meanwhile, he's saying, "But I support you. I like you. I'm with you." And then he undercuts them, at the, cuts them off at the knees. I haven't seen anything like this. You got to go back in time. I'll give you a local uh, ana- uh, parallel, ladies and gentlemen. In 2011, Karen Lewis led the teachers on a, a strike, and I remember Proco Joe Moreno at the time was the alderman of the first ward, was a loyalist to Rahm Emanuel. Went on TV, I believe it was Fox, and he said, "While he loved teachers, he couldn't stand their union." <laughs> That was kind of like what Trump is doing right here. Exactly. Exactly. Rahm Emanuel didn't go as far as Trump. 
So Rahm Emanuel, Mayor Rahm Emanuel in 2011, if Rahm Emanuel was going to take a page from the Trump playbook, he would go on the picket side or drive by a picket side and wave out the window. I support you. And then go, of course, undercut him at the bargaining table. Slick move by Trump. Also on my mind is the ongoing actor strike and screenwriter strike. The contrasting attitudes. This is I've been thinking about this for a while. I haven't really articulated this on the mic yet, ladies and gentlemen, between Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher. I do not understand this, ladies and gentlemen. I I mean, I understand it, but I do not understand it. So each are uh, Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher are celebrities. They have their own talk shows. Uh, and uh, they've been on strike, or excuse me, they've been shut down while because the writers on strike, they didn't want to cross the picket line. They didn't want to have a show that would undercut the writers. Uh, each of them announced over the last two weeks that enough's enough. They're going to return. They said they were doing it for the uh, other employees uh, who are off of work and need a paycheck, and that's why they're doing it. Not their egos for the other workers. They're always doing it for the other workers. Uh, and um, so he, here's the thing. Drew Barrymore was attacked aggressively across the board and forced to retreat. First, she had the tearful apology in which she said, even though I'm apologizing, I'm still going to do what I did that forces me to apologize. I'm still going to have a show, which made no sense at all. Uh, and then, in fact, finally, she just uh, raised the white flag and announced that she was not going to go back. Uh, Bill Maher, on the other hand, is typical Bill Maher, her pompous way, announced, I'm going back. Enough's enough already. And I, I don't, I mean, I just don't believe the intensity of the response to Bill Maher was as strong as Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the favorite conversations I used to have with the late, great Karen Lewis all the time. Why is it that people pound so hard, particularly on, uh, on union issues, when the union is led by women as opposed to mm-hmm. men, it was so hard on Carol Lewis and the teachers. I, I don't see anyone uh, coming that hard, definitely for mainstream newspapers or uh, for mainstream Chicago or definitely the Republican Party on, let's say, Johnny Catanzaro in the, in the uh, Fraternal Order Police. Mm-hmm. Care. You would believe that Karen Lewis and the Chicago Teachers Union, now Stacey Davis Gates and the, and the Teachers Union, were responsible for every ill in the city of Chicago. But any male-dominated union, they get a pass. It's really weird. And so now I'm watching this with talk show hosts. They're pounding Drew Barrymore. Oh, my God, how dare she? And Bill Maher, they're kind of like, uh, it's always like a side issue. What, are you guys mm-hmm. afraid of Bill Maher? He's going to make fun of you? <laughs> He's not even allowed to, to tell a joke anymore. You know what I mean? Because he can't <laughs> tell a joke. Someone has to write a joke. Anyway, so there's that. And then finally, the last thing I saw this. Um, I just This is so classic New York Times. Uh, usually I do. David Ferris comes on the show every other week. We make fun of the New York Times. There's so much to make fun of the New York Times for. Uh, this is their headline on their coverage of the uh, auto workers strike, the UAW strike. This is, how about this for penetrating analysis from the New York Times? (laughs) I will now read the headline, Keith, and then bring you on. The strike is a high-stakes gamble for auto workers and the labor movement. Experts on unions and the industry said the UAW strike could accelerate a wave of worker actions or stifle labor's recent momentum. Take a freaking stand, New York Times. (laughs) You know what New York Times you remind me of? The sports writers in Chicago. 
when it comes to predicting how the Bears are going to do. Well, they could have a great season, in which case they make the playoffs, or they could be horrible. Oh, <laughs> way to take a stand, sports writers of Chicago. What insights? All right, without further ado, the guy is just dying to come on the show and talk to great, the legendary Keith Kelleher, dear friend of mine, dear friend of this show. Uh, and he built, now he's going to correct me, Ben, I didn't build it, the workers built it. All right, he worked with the workers to build a union, so he knows a thing or two about labor, labor sh- disputes, strikes, politicians, media, how media deals with labor. So, Keith, get ready to take the deep dive. You ready? I'm ready. All right, so which one should, well, let's just start with the New York Times. Well, I'm Bill, the Bill Maher, just on that Bill Maher thing. Yeah. Did you, did you hear about I was watching him on that show on uh, WTTW, you know, your history or whatever, you know, about finding your roots. Oh, with uh, Henry Louis Gates? Yeah, and they had yeah. Bill Maher on. And it turns out, <laughs> he didn't even know this. His grandfather, you know, they, they do a deep dive and they go in and they look up yeah. in the newspapers. Turns out Bill Maher's grandfather led a strike of tugboat operators in New York Harbor in the 1920s or 30s, I believe. And Bill Maher knew nothing about it. Oh, <laughs> it's so uh, typical. Yeah. Grandfather uh, leads a strike. Grandson walks through the picket line. Yeah, know? there you go. <laughs> That's called devolution. Yeah, um, right. Well, I'm going back to the New York Times headline, uh, okay. Keith. You've been dealing with the mainstream media for a long time when it comes to labor issues. It always seems to me that the mainstream media is constantly bending over backwards to prove that or establish they have no quote-unquote bias. Even if mm-hmm. members, it's like, because a lot of the people who write the articles or write the headlines are themselves mm-hmm. union right. members, okay? Yeah. And the bright one had a, to be saved, the Chicago Sun-Times, a point I love to make, had a mm-hmm. turn to the unions to, to get some <laughs> bailout, including Keith's union at the time, right. uh, SEIU. We helped prop them up. Yeah. To prop them up, uh, and then what, how do they repay? Stick you, stab you in the boom. back, undercut you every chance they get. Am I being unfair to the media, Keith? No, I mean I was listening to WBEZ the other two reports on BEZ about the UAW strike, right? Yeah. Led one was on Friday night, one was the other day, uh, yesterday afternoon. Friday night was all things considered. Yesterday afternoon was that afternoon show. I forget the name of it, and. All of the, both of the reporters, totally different shows, said the strike is about wages, two-tier, and old-fashioned pensions. <laughs> and they're all agreeing with the business people that they were interviewing about old-fashioned pensions and how terrible old-fashioned pensions are. Now, what they were talking about is what technically they would call defined benefit pensions, which is like Social Security, right? You're going to get a check every month, right, from your pension fund. Mm -hmm. That's what they're calling old-fashioned pensions. And they're making out like, oh, workers don't like them anymore. The public doesn't like them anymore. (laughs) No one like When actually, if you poll people, would you like to have a pension that sends you a check every month after you retire or are disabled? Would you want that? Overwhelming support among working people. But this report, these two reporters, I think one was Mary Louise Kelly, the other one was, I forget, I forget the other guy's name, were agreeing that old-fashioned pensions was too far a reach for the UAW, these old-fashioned pensions. Because, you know, they had 
a defined benefit pension, and then they gave up. I think I believe partially they went for a 401k in the 2008 bailout of the whole industry, right? Which, mm -hmm. I mean, the workers bailed out the whole freaking industry to save them, right? And now they're coming back and saying, they being the industry is coming back and saying, no, we're not going to help, you know, give you a fair share of the profits, right? So the media, I mean, I just was going crazy screaming that here is WBEZ supposedly, you know, they should just change their name to WBIZ for business, you know, because it's like, this is supposed to be the progressive liberal NPR. And here they are going right with these business. One was a business columnist from the Wall Street Journal. The other was a business professor at the University of Michigan. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Well, Keith, all right, there is, uh, now we're on a tangent here. We should get back to, okay. oh, no, let's, let's, let's follow this tangent. Since I came to Chicago and started writing in this market, I've realized that there is a, a generalized position, a conventional wisdom that reporters or journalists in this town must follow. Mm -hmm. Or they will be, they'll not be part of the mainstream. Right. And I could go on and on about uh, sort of the different examples. The classic example that I could think of is crime. When you have a black mayor, crime is something that that mayor is personally responsible for. Mm -hmm. Exactly. In a way that Mayor Daley or Mayor Rahm were never responsible for. Mm -hmm. And this is this is a notion that's ingrained. And I know a lot of reporters would argue and say, no, it's not true. But I've been reading the newspapers in this town, Keith, since yep. forever. And I <laughs> see it. I saw it with Mayor Washington in particular. Like, it's just a, a refrain. You have to buy into it. You know, you uh, so a, another classic example is um, when uh, Amazon wanted to come here, you had to buy into the notion that it was a good deal. Right. I can't recall anybody writing a column or an article in the mainstream or going on BEZ to argue that this was not a good deal for taxpayers. Mm -hmm. right. Across the board, it was like, this is a good. And then you have to, like, join the, the cheerleading squad to say, can we win this? Can, mm -hmm. So it'll be it, great for Chicago. It'll be great for Chicago. I used mm -hmm. to, I, and don't even get me started in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So um, going back to the pension issue. Okay. When they say old fashioned pensions as opposed to 401ks, what do they mean? What is the essence of that distinction? Go. Defined benefit means you get a check every month, a defined benefit based on your years of service and various formulas so that you can live in your retirement years. Defined contribution means that the company will only give like a percentage, usually three or 4%, if they'll match at all, you know? And many companies just offer it that you can put three or 4% into your own, your own money and they don't match it, right? And then whatever is left at the end, that defined contribution, that 3%, or even if there's a match, whatever is left at the end of your working life, 40 years, which I believe the most 401ks and are very small amounts in most people's 401k by the time you retire, 
because you know you're allowed to borrow against it you're allowed to pull out of it and some people do you're laid off you got to use it you know so uh so you don't get a check all you get is that lump sum and then you have to live on that for the rest of your life so say it's even like 50 or 100 grand i mean that in Chicago, you know, you can live on, you know, that for more than a couple of years at most, you know? And so that's what people are stuck with now. That's why you're having, I mean, I think it's also, it's big, there's a lot of unhoused folks now who are uh, seniors, you know, who don't have pensions anymore. So, um, so corporations over the last 50 years have just systematically shed these because the government allowed them to do it uh, under the under Reagan. And so really what they're doing is they're taking an argument on the state and municipal level and, and applying it uh, universally. Follow me on this. Mm-hmm. So you, you ask why are mainstream reporters, you think about why are mainstream reporters taking a position on pensions? Because for the last at least since Daly really lost uh, the Olympics in 2010, mm-hmm. that's really when this began in full form. There has been a chorus, a very a loud, very strong, a very prominent chorus uh, in all the mainstream newspapers in the city uh, and in, in the general area, criticizing the uh, pensions that the state and the city must pay its mm-hmm. employees. And they have um, convinced I think mainstream uh, reporters, et cetera, and so forth, that this is detrimental. Absolutely. Providing for uh, people when they get old, Mm -hmm. uh, a defined pension with a a specific amount of money that you have to get is somehow or other detrimental to the Mm -hmm. economy because people have to pay contributions now to bolster it. Mm-hmm. And so they're undercutting this notion that there's like a common good. You follow me, Keith? Like, yeah, yeah. I pay money that you benefit. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm a young person. I pay money that you benefit. But when I get old, I will. it'll be there. I'll have a pension. They're undercutting that. Right. You follow what I'm saying? Yes. The same thing they're doing on Social Security. They're trying to play the younger people against the older people, saying you're paying it. Will you ever see any of that Social Security money? You know, I mean, they're using these scare tactics and refusing to move on any solution, which could be very simple to the social security problem, but they're doing the same thing about private pensions. Yes, exactly. They're saying we're paying into these pensions for these teachers or these public employees, you know, and, you know, many times if you see the, the newspapers, these greedy public employees who are trying to get pensions and now they're trying to do it against the UAW. They're trying to see, now they want to go back to those old-fashioned pensions. Well, those old-fashioned pensions are taking care of hundreds of thousands of people in the UAW, not to mention tens of, if not hundreds of millions of members and their families nationally, those that are surviving, at least. Yeah. Hey, man. So anyway. Uh, hey, NPR reporters, here's my advice to you. Mm-hmm. Don't get old. Just stay young forever. Then you won't <laughs> have to worry about a pension. Just stay young for wherever and healthy. Mm-hmm and vibrant mm-hmm. go write your little stories and you'll mm-hmm. never have to retire right and you'll never know what it's like to try to worry about you know, paying your bills on fixed income that's my advice to uh npr reporters all right uh let's talk about the the uaw strike before we get to the uh, screenwriters and the actors i find it mm-hmm. fast many levels um first of all 
let's dig into the strategy uh, that uh, uh, the UAW is following with this strike in terms of trying to put the pressure on uh, the uh, automakers without putting all their employees, all excuse me, all their members on the picket mm-hmm. line. Away, explain. So what they're doing is um, they're doing a what they're calling a stand-up strike, which is um, referring to the sit-downs that actually were the birth of the UAW and back in the 1936 to 37. What actually birthed the UAW was the sit-down strike. They're calling this the stand-up strike, which means instead of sitting down and taking over your workplace, there's they are um, saying to their members, walk out at specific factories that are high um, profit factories for this for these auto companies i believe now they're just doing gm so they're going at the high profit trucks you know suvs that's where they make all their money and that's pretty much their niche now and and they're there's the uaw leadership it's just a brilliant strategy which is to shut down those plants and cut off their profits okay or at least cut off their biggest profit centers right and then um, it was a very similar strategy to what was used in the, in the 1930s to focus on the plants that were key that brought the bodies of all of, of all the automobiles to the other feeder plants to put together the cars. They struck those plants that produced those bodies so that they could not produce cars anymore. And uh, in the case of the UAW then, they, it was just a few factories in Flint, Michigan, expanded it to some other cities after that. And that's actually what eventually brought the auto company, uh, GM at that point, to to its knees. Um, and now they're using a similar strategy to focus on the high profit factories um, so that they can hurt the company. But all their members are still working, except for the ones that are going out on strikes. So they're doing rolling strikes. And that means the Let's say it's 13,000 on strike right now. I think that was the figure I heard. Well, that's less than 10% of their membership. So the other 90% of the members are still working and still getting a paycheck. Now, the companies are starting to lay off a little, but still, it is a genius strike. Instead of having all 150, 170,000 members out on the picket line, they're just selectively hitting it and rotating it um, right now. So the strategy is to hurt the companies, keep their members working. Um, but also to put at maximum pressure on the companies and politically to get them to settle an agreement. All right. Well, let me play New York Times uh, reporter with you. <laughs> on the other hand, Keith. Uh, what about these old-fashioned pensions? Oh, the other hand, Keith. <laughs> uh, i the New York Times. Um, well, okay, so the challenge to uh, the union leadership is to uh, – somehow or other convince the the people who are on strike uh that they're not losing something uh in contra in comparison with the people who are still going to work Mm -hmm. so you got some people are already on the line and they're not working right now Mm -hmm. uh and they're doing it on behalf of the unit of of the whole total totality of the union Mm -hmm. so what do you if you were a, a union leader uh keith what would you say to those workers who are on strike to convince them that their sacrifice now uh, is warranted? Go ahead. I and think they probably have the other. Protect it. Go ahead. If you go by the, you know, what I've read in the press and everything and seen, 
UAW has been planning this for a while. You know, it's just not like they've been having meetings in their locals with their members and discussing the strategy, I'm sure, you know, uh, while at the same time giving some head fakes to the companies, right, of what their strategy is actually going to be. Because the companies, from what I hear, were completely caught off guard. You know, they weren't sure what they were going to do. And so this is just a great strategy. Um, and they've been preparing their members uh, who are ready to, especially if they, you know, if these folks then go back to work and then the other ones went, or if they spread it. A big decision I heard it might be this Friday where they have to decide if they should go after all of the companies and all of their profit centers as opposed to just GM. And if they have to spread it instead of, I think they're in three states now to spread it into 10 or 20 or more states and take out a significant majority or minority of their of their members out on strike, you know, so that's going to be a big decision they'll have to make this week, depending on how negotiations are going, I assume. Well, right now there's three facilities that are uh, the strike is has shut down. One is a GM facility, one is a Ford a facility, and the other mm -hmm. is Atlantis facilities. So those are the big three automakers uh, that they're dealing with. Then there's also the issue of the automakers with their non-union to begin with. And that's mm -hmm. where things get tricky. Right. Uh, electric vehicles, I'm thinking mm -hmm. particularly Tesla right now, uh, Elon Musk's uh, company, which is not only not union, Musk is vehemently anti-union. Mm -hmm. So Keith, this is, this is tricky. The uh, UAW effectively wants benefits for companies that their union isn't even, uh, doesn't even represent the workers mm -hmm. uh, can't think of a parallel right now in Chicago. Yeah. But uh, so how does this play out uh, for the, for the union to try to force these uh, big companies, uh, General Motors, Ford and Stellantis that have electric vehicle facilities, but those facilities are not union shops. So how does this play out? How can you force them to give a, uh, an agreement that benefits their employees if they're not a union shop. Go ahead. Well, if you look at, um, for instance, the big battery plant that they announced a few months ago, or maybe even last year in um, Ohio, mm -hmm. Trump, not Trump, excuse me, Biden, you know, flew in, said this is going to be a union facility. We're building this with union wages. You know, you know that's because it's going to be covered under a project labor agreement. That means that those workers will go through union hiring halls and be members of the union. And uh, that is encouraged by the federal government, is legal, has gone to the Supreme Court. And a lot of it was started by executive orders originally that eventually became law. And also under prevailing wage, you have to pay the prevailing wage in that area if you're using federal uh, and depending on states and local municipalities have these laws too, that you have to build that uh, with prevailing wage labor, which in most cases is unionized labor. But they don't have it for the workers that are actually in these plants, right? So many of these facilities are going to be built with union labor that are going to be producing the batteries and the automobiles, et cetera. I believe what the UAW strategy is, is to get the same types of labor protections that are very common in the uh, construction industry for the workers who are going to be actually building those electric vehicles, you know? And it's, uh, I believe that's their strategy. I've seen the, I think the um, article you quoted earlier actually has the president of the UAW saying that he 
They want Biden before they even endorse him. They want Biden to put in labor protections in all the 200, was it 200, 250 billion that's coming down uh, to build these plants and facilities that those places should be unionized labor as well. And that the companies that are union and that agreed to be union, just like in the construction industry, will have preference for those contracts. Yeah, uh, this, this is something you pointed out to me before I went on the mic, mm-hmm. and I was not aware of this in my uh, utter ignorance of, there's so much in the world I'm ignorant about, Keith, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's never too late to learn something. I did not realize, you told me this, uh, that, I don't know, on a regular basis, I don't know if it's once a month or once every other month or what have you, uh, union officials from the building trades in Chicago will sit down with city leaders. In this case, it would be uh, officials of the Brandon Johnson administration before that, right. it was Lori Lightfoot, uh, and go through every single uh, city-funded or publicly-funded construction project in the city to break down whether uh, their union or they're getting the union. If even if they're not union, they're getting uh, union wages, wages Explain as that. well as as wages as well as benefits, right? And they have to pay uh, into those benefit funds. Uh, so, yes, there's a I, I don't know the name of it, but it's either a, a prevailing wage committee uh, and the Department of Labor um, locally and nationally has a whole department dedicated to prevailing wage, which figures out basically through the union contracts what the prevailing wage is for a carpenter or an electrician or whatever, and says that if you want this contract, you have to go through the union hiring hall, okay, in the case of a pro- prevailing uh, a project labor agreement, and that you have to pay these folks what those workers get in that area and into their funds to make sure that they have not only good um, wages, but also good benefits. And so that's what has kept the construction industry, at least in most major cities from going down. It's still lost a big, the constru- United Construction Works have lost a lot, but this is, project labor agreements have kept a lot of the federal money and state and local grant money. And so there is a committee that meets and they say, hey, these bricklayers over here on Lawrence, this is a non-union shop and that's federal money that's going into rehab that place. What are you doing? The city is, has a commitment to be the prevailing wage. These folks need to be paid prevailing wage. And then they put pressure on the company and say, hey, what's going on? This, this is federal money or whatever, you know, state money. And highly in some states, it's state money. In some states, it's city money uh, that uh, has to be paid to union scale workers, prevailing wage. And so that's what um, I think the UAW wants to get uh, for the for the, the the these new plants that are going to be coming down the line, instead of for GM and all them to open up some subsidiary, and then run all the electric vehicle stuff non-union, they want commitments that any money whoever gets it has to go through has to be treated fairly, good wages, get good benefits, and protected under a union contract. Some of them even go so far as saying that they have to have a a grievance procedure, that they have to have a grievance procedure where they can go to arbitration, things like that. Anyway, I'm just might be getting a little too much in the weeds, but that's what a PLA is. 
Uh, Keith, the other uh, interesting little side development when it comes to the electric vehicles uh, is how, in many ways, uh, this strike or this uh, the labor movement in general is being played against. This is an interesting little trick. The environmental movement. Right. Uh, and so the driving force behind electronic uh, electric vehicles uh, is to deal with the destruction of the planet as we know it by not emitting the uh, the fumes into the atmosphere. And <laughs> somehow or other, the way that gets translated, again, our good friends in the mainstream media, is that unions and labor are preventing companies like Ford and General Motors and Stellantis mm-hmm. and Tesla, who all they want to do is save the planet by producing right. uh, environmental-friendly cars. But these selfish, greedy, nasty, only think about themselves uh, workers and their unions are preventing Ford from doing the right thing to save the planet. Please address this issue and explain to me how anybody who reads the New York Times could be so dumb as to believe it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it is... It is insane. Actually, the UAW has said they are all for switching to EV. They support it, but that Biden um, and needs to address the labor standards and that they are withholding their endorsement from him um, based on that because he is not agreeing to labor standards in the new EV industry. So it's just so typical. They always do this where they try to blame the union for something that's seen as um, scientific, you know, the, the next big frontier and that the union is standing in the way that they're somehow, you know, want to go back to the days of, you know, blacksmiths and horseshoes um, to protect the blacksmiths union or something. That's how they are, you know, and it's total, it's just a total straw person. You know, they're just setting it up and setting the UAW up as a bogey, bogey person in this to make out like a, uh, uh, and it's just not true, you know, and they're all the UAW is saying is we need to have uh, this electric vehicles, but we also need to have labor standards, which I think is the what everybody believes that, yeah, if they're going to build up these plants then they should build them, not only build them union, but they should be unionized for those workers and that they should have labor protections in this new industry because it's going to be huge, especially if we're dropping 1.2 trillion of that 250 billion is going to be on construction of these places. So, um, that's well, what I- this is this is the kernel of a point that they have. That uh, and and again, I get so much news from the mainstreams. Mm-hmm. So I make fun of the mainstreams, uh, Keith, but I read them all the time. What they're up to. So, this is one of their favorite arguments. Uh, so it caught. There's fewer employees that work on a um, uh, electric vehicle uh, than uh, the gas-driven uh, vehicles. There's fewer parts in electric vehicles, so fewer employees. Therefore, there's no way out, unions. This, I'm just telling you what the New York Times says, Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way out. You're going to lose members. You've got to accept that. This is like Mayor Rahm sitting Karen Lewis right. down in 2011. You're going to lose members, and you're going to tell mm-hmm. your little colleague members of your union you're going to like it. And that's essentially mm-hmm. what's being said to the union. You're going to lose members. This is the future. This will protect the, our planet. So Just shut up and, up and like and it. Take it. Suck yeah, it up and take it. Yeah, tell your union employees <laughs> you're going to lose jobs and you're going to like it. Um, what's your response to that, Keith? This is, happens every time there's a you know some sort of – 
huge technological and or industrial revolution in this country is that they always say that workers and communities have to take the brunt of the suffering, right? And actually, what if you look at it, is that these new technologies create jobs and they create, um, in many cases, low wage jobs, right? And that they, um, what the UAW is saying and what other unions are saying is that, well, these folks should have union union rights and should have collective bargaining and should have good benefits and wages. And what's wrong with that? You know, that's what we stand for. So I just think it's just a, another thing that they use to try to make out how unions are backwards or something and are not forward thinking when it actually, this is very forward thinking by the UAW to say, we support electric vehicles, but you need to have protections on this industry. We are going to sink trillions of dollars in this industry and we need to, but they should be union, good unionized jobs and not um, minimum wage jobs, which they would do if they wanted to. And the uh, industries that are an offshoot of the electric vehicle uh, manufacturers should also be unionized jobs. So you shouldn't right. pretend like they don't exist. You follow right. what I'm it's saying? Like that, like, yeah. Not like there's not going to be brakes and fenders and all this other stuff. All the feeder plant. I mean, that's the big effect on the strike is that it's not just the 150,000 workers who go on strike. It's all those feeder plants with that is like millions of jobs. You know, people don't realize that all of the other, what is it? They're like several thousand parts that go into each automobile. And many of those are made by specific factories and industries. And those are jobs that are going to be affected by a strike too. And that are going to be affected right now. So, um, and those in the future, there are going to be need for those in the electrical vehicle. Uh, market as well you know all right let's get into the politics of this thing you know i'm an obsessive political junkie uh and geek uh mm-hmm. and i already talked briefly about what donald trump is up to uh, and then we'll get into uh joe biden uh but uh never quite seen anything like what donald trump uh is proposing to do which is like right now there's he's talking about like if not going to a picket line, joining the workers on a picket line and like driving by your classic Trump <laughs> in his limo, in his, his limo, limo. Two, yeah, his, his definitely not electric, uh, vehicle limo <laughs> to wave at the workers, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, his supporters, uh, 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 will then cheer him on and say, that's a sign of support. I, one of the great advantages, uh, that, um, the Republicans have over Democrats in states like Michigan or Ohio uh, is that non uh, labor issues. They have such a huge advantage with some of the workers, like cultural issues, etc. Uh, and so workers will vote Republican, even if Donald Trump or J.D. Vance uh, or, uh, you know, any of the Republican nominees, uh, Republican presidential nom- uh, wannabes uh, could be working against the union, but they'll still, the workers, some of the workers will vote for them. Whereas Democrats have to actually give something, make something work for the mm-hmm. unions to get the votes. It's a mm-hmm. huge political advantage for the Republicans because the, uh, because the Republicans can join with the manufacturers and we're in lining up against the workers and still not pay a consequence uh, for at the polls, your thoughts. Well, I mean, I think 
this this is just Trump being Trump. You know, he's just trying to jump on. I mean, look at the news cycle. Every you know, every story, every time you turn on the TV, it's about the UAW strike, right? So he's just trying to get his two cents in there. Um, so he's sort of a to me sort of a non-issue on this whole thing. He's going to set up, <laughs> I read the thing, he's going to Detroit and he's going to have about 500 guys in a room, you know, which, and it says, if you read it, it's like current and past auto work. <laughs> well, yeah, I bet you a lot of them are past, right? <laughs> and I bet you a lot of them aren't auto, work, auto workers. And it says there's going to be pipe fitters and plumbers and electricians and all this other stuff. Well, you know, it's just like, who knows what this is really about, but it just sounds to me like a dog and pony show. He gets up there, says the Democrats suck, I'm for you, you know, and I'm not like, I'm Mr. Democrat either, you know, I mean, there's many times I'm like, the Democrats suck too, right? But in this case, this is just Trump trying to get, you know, uh, political mileage out of a strike uh, that is being waged by hundreds of thousands of brave workers, and he's just trying to get some mileage out of it, right? So, I mean, I think um, Biden could come out and do a lot of things. Um, he could agree with uh, uh, Fain, and he could say, yes, we're going to put some, or he could, I mean, he sent two, he has sent two representatives, I believe, right, to help out with the negotiations or try, encourage a settlement. Uh, that's all great. But uh, the real story is going to be what the UAW is going to do next, because that's really what's what's wagging this thing, right, is the UAW. If they decide to go big time, uh, they will drown out uh, Trump, you know, um, and but it's up to them. You know, it's up to what their what they believe their strength is going to be and uh, who can hold out longer, you know, um, Well, explain to me why it is that uh, presidents are so reluctant uh, to join workers on uh, uh, a picket line. I had this conversation, Miles Conflasmus on the show last week, we were talking about uh, the strike, which was um, hadn't happened yet, but it was about to happen. And we could not recall uh, a president joining workers on a picket line. Definitely no. not in my lifetime. I don't, yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I, I don't remember. I go back away. Either, you know? I'm older than you, Keith, if that's such a thing as possible. So um, why I is think, it? Go. I, I think it's so just that they have to, you know, or they think that they have to be, definitely when they're candidates, they're definitely on the picket line. You know, I mean, I, I remember candidates going to picket lines, uh, political candidates going to picket lines and picketing with the workers. But I don't remember a president who's actually in office, right, um, uh, going, to, going to a picket line, right? But... It would be great, I think, if Biden would, you know, but um, it would be even better if he encourages, uh, comes out and does what the UAW wants him to do, right, which is to not only help settle this agreement, but get um, commitments that federal money that's coming down the pipeline is going to go to uh, some sort of, to, the, to companies that are union and that are going to pay union scale, are they going to pay the union benefits and treat people right? and not into another low-wage economy, um, you know, like like big tech. I mean, look at the G Google and all the, you know, these folks. It's not like those jobs are great either. You know, half their stuff is outsourced to China. So, I mean, that's what I think um, is going on. And if, 
if Biden would do it, it would be great. But I think more importantly is that he um, he's already spoken out, right? And will he actually say, you guys better do what the UW, UAW wants you to do in these contract negotiations and protect this, uh, protect these workers in this new industry and make sure that these workers are allowed to organize and have organizing rights. That's right. what it comes down to. Now, in your experience, in your years of uh, working with unions, building unions, dealing with politicians, is there a marked difference uh, between Republican and Democrats and how they uh, come through for unions in these kinds of negotiations? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think... Republicans are, you know, they, especially now it's much more, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. You might be able to get a moderate Republican to do something once in a while, you know, or a moderate Dem for the, for that matter. But, um, Democrats generally, um, can now, will they do it? No. I mean, in e each of these cases, you have to drag them, uh, to the table to get this stuff done, right? No matter who it is. And it really gets down to organizing and it gets down to, who is stronger on the street and is able to last longer. And that's what it's going to come down to in this strike too, right? Um, I know um, well, uh, with our union, we've had to put pressure on Democrats. We've had to put pressure on Republicans. We've had to go out and picket them, their fundraisers, whatever, in order to get things done. And uh, that's how you... That's how you do it by organizing on the street. And that's what it's going to come down to, I think, in this case. And with the, um, you know, I remember um, when we were um, organizing home care workers and uh, a lot of these companies were like, oh, well, they're not our employees. These are employees of um, the state of Illinois. And they were trying to get the state to take responsibility for the workers. Really, they didn't care. They didn't care who took responsibility. But it wasn't until that uh, we actually put the pressure on the companies and the state for the state to say, hey, stop using that argument. These are not our folks. We pay you guys. You should pay these folks a living wage. And that was the way we were able to organize, you know, 25,000 home care workers in private sector home care, you know, yeah. is to put the pressure on the state and the companies. And that's going to be the key thing is keeping the pressure on Biden, keeping the pressure on the company and the corporations um, with the strike. Um, and yeah, I think Biden wants to be seen as the knight coming in on the, on the horse and, you know, solving this thing Well, he needs to move and he needs to move these corporations. So, uh, but I think the, the major thing will be the UAW in the coming days is if they spread the strike, if they, um, hit instead of three states, 10 states, 15 states, instead of 13,000, um, or, is this, has this been enough? We'll see. Maybe it's been enough. Maybe the corporations are like, whoa, we're, we're losing too much money. This is insane. Plus, all of public opinion is against them. You know, public opinion is totally for the workers. Um, and it's, it's just a new time. I think uh, the companies have been caught flat-footed. And I think it's because of the genius of this UAW strategy, right? That they're hurting them. They're hitting them. They're getting lots of great press. And uh, they're keeping their people out. And that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, and it remains to be seen who is going to last in this thing. Will the UAW um, be able to last long enough and put enough pressure on both the corporations and Biden to put in those labor, um, in the case of um, 
the technology on the EVs, will they put enough pressure on that they will be able to win that in negotiations? Or will it just come down to the two-tier, the wages and the other outstanding issues, you know? So that just remains to be seen, but I just think it's an ingenious strategy that the UAW is using, and I think they're going to win. All right, let's switch. Let's switch to the uh, uh, the screenwriters and the actors. They've been on strike mm-hmm. for a while now. Um, your thoughts on their strategy and where they stand in their strike? Um, I think, uh, from my understanding, on, as far as the actors, uh, I think um, both of these, stri- actually, all three of these strikes, to me, the key thing, and it'll be interesting to see what happens, is the technology versus people. In the UAW case, it's you know uh, it's EV EV vehicles, and the screenwriters. Uh, I'm sorry, the writers, and the Screen Actors Guild and APTCHA. It's uh, AI, you know, artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, they want to. These companies want to take a person's image after they've done like one TV commercial and own it forever. You know, it's insane. I don't know if you saw this thing. Um, and it also comes down to residuals too, but. If you saw this thing on um, how much, how little money people are making from these huge benefits the corporations get, uh, we read a thing the other day that uh, I don't know if you remember. This is from our, this is this is from the boomers' age, Ben. But Peter Frampton, remember him? He had done. <laughs> yeah. He was complaining. He was complaining that he had done, I think, a remix of one of his famous songs. Yeah. And it got five point like five million views. Okay. Okay, on one of these platforms. You know how much he got as a residual check for that? Seventeen hundred dollars. Wow! Could you yeah. imagine if he had sold five point five million albums? Yeah. What he would have gotten for that, you know? Yeah. And that is the bread and butter in those industries with that with this with the SAG-AFTRA, and with the writers is how much residuals they're going to get, and if they're going to be able to use AI to write the scripts and to you know, they could just take all these actors, you know, <laughs> images and yeah. use them any way they want, you know, yeah. and just get make money, more money and more money. And the actors get nothing. You know, it's just ridiculous. So I think the strategy here is that they're they are obviously putting a big hole and I think it's working beautifully. I mean, it was so great. I mean, to hear Bill Maher and Drew Barrymore back down you know they're like oh no we're gonna die and we're gonna you know <laughs> we're gonna uh, uh, we're going back to it you know and then it was like i think like the the um blowback to both of them was unbelievable and it also affected other talk shows too that i heard were also thinking of going back in or had been going back trying to go back into production you know so it, this will be, uh, I think, similar to the UAW, um, how much pain they can inflict. And they are inflicting a lot of pain because now they're going into the next season and they're saying it's not going to be till January, you know. And, you know, it's been reported. I'm sure you've heard this too. One of the big um, producers said, we're just going to wait this out until people start losing their houses and losing their apartments and are forced out onto the street. And that's what we're going to wait to do. Uh, to these folks, right? But I think what they haven't counted for is that people are pro-union and are pro-worker and are pro-these actors and the writers. I mean, who would have thought that the writers and the actors could put that much pressure to back off 
Drew Barrymore and Marr and force these companies back. Now, they're supposedly, you know, the writers are going back tomorrow, I hear, into negotiations. Yeah. Um, and I think that, from what I hear, that also will affect sag afters negotiations. If it looks like there's progress being made there, there may be progress. Because there, there's a many of the same uh, um, actors, I think, on the other side of the table in all of this, you know, like many of the producers who hire the writers are the same producers who hire the sag after, you know? Yeah. So um, I think it's, you know, I think it's great. I mean, the last time this happened was in 1960 and it was a huge, that's when sag after and the writers actually won a very yeah. a great residual policy, you know, not great, but it can always be better, but a good residual policy and better benefits and, um, um, wages for their industry right i mean the edge i mean i don't know if you want to go into this but the average actor is what you know twenty five thousand dollars a year i mean yeah it's, no it's, you know? it's you know and it's fine i'm going to tie the two themes together we began by talking about the mainstream media's coverage of pensions uh and old-fashioned pensions and so the mm -hmm. message is that the mainstream media that npr is sending out is don't get old because mm -hmm. we don't right you, you, we don't really care what happens to you uh you better and you better hope uh that you have enough money uh, saved up at all times, you know, to dip into your uh, savings uh, mm -hmm. to pay for current benefits. Now <laughs> they're telling us, oh, well, don't expect a living wage while you're young. Right. So, so what's it going to be, mainstream media? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we're going to starve while we're young and starve while we're old? Mm -hmm. I, Keith, it's just like I say this all the time on this show on so many different issues, but they are trying to destroy what i grew up and you mm -hmm. grew up we're basically mm -hmm. the same generation even though i'm a little older than you what we grew up knowing as the middle class they're mm -hmm. destroying what is the middle class in this country so like even something like being an actor you know mm -hmm. that's a tough that's a tough uh, business to very go tough. into it's a very tough business but you can eke out a living mm -hmm. commercials you know, uh, plays, theater, theater small list, parts and TV that. shows, etc. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, residual deals. You could eke out a pretty good living, you know, a middle class existence. They're trying to destroy that. At the same time, they're saying we can't afford Social Security. So I don't know how people are going to live. I know. I mean, I was listening to one of the fairly famous actress. I'd, I forget the name now on one of the regular TV shows. She had a regular part and was a uh, she said she got she got like four thousand per show, and then when they took the um, taxes and everything out, she netted under two thousand for each episode, and there were like eight episodes, you know, it's like per season. So how are you going to survive on sixteen thousand dollars, you know, as a and this is not a, a minor act, you know, this is like a part that most actors and actresses would kill for, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I think the, the it does get back to the old, the basics of organizing, right? That it's been obvious that there's been a lot of preparation going into these strikes by both SAG-AFTRA, the writers, and UAW, and extremely well-disciplined. I was out marching with SAG-AFTRA, I think it was last month, it was last month, the month before, when they marched from um, Millennium Park down to Buckingham Fountain. And these folks were together. I mean, these folks were inspirational. It was great, you know, and it was, I was honored to be there, to be marching with these folks. You know, it was like 90 degrees and, you know, um, people marched the whole way and had a rally for a long time. Just great, great 
um, spirit and great people and very tight. So um, I think that's really what's going to win this, right, is when these folks stay together and keep doing these regular actions, in the case of the UAW, pulling people out at certain places, pressure points, whatever. I mean, that's how the UAW was born, was a couple of hundred workers in a couple of plants in Flint said, no more, we're taking over these factories. And they sat in and over 40 days in sub-zero weather, they sat down and they took hold of the those factories. And that's what the UAW is essentially doing now. And that's what SAG-AFTRA and the writers are doing is they are withholding their labor. And they are saying, no, we are not going to put up with this bullshit. And we want a better standard of living for ourselves, for our children, and for our grandchildren. And they're doing, I think, what everybody understands. And they're getting great, great public support. Highest ever for union. You know, it's like... What was it? It was 72% or something. I saw that. Yeah. You know, the <laughs> highest ever public support for unions. And, and I don't want to leave out, you know, the Starbucks workers. I've been on a lot of their picket lines. These folks are fantastic. And these are young workers. And the farther down you go in age, the higher support for unions. I think people 20 to 30 is like 87 or 90% for support unions. It's because they've realized that the jobs that are out there for them is this big gig economy, you know, that's, that's all you can get is, you know, 20 hours at Starbucks, you know, whatever you get for an Uber, $5 a ride at Uber, you know, uh, that's all there is out there for young people. And so that's what these folks are saying. And that's what I think is inspirational to me about the UAW going back to the roots instead of sitting down, they're standing up and if SAG-AFTRA and, um, W, the, the Writers Guild doing what they did in 1960 and walking out and saying, you're not going to get another episode of whatever <laughs> until we get a living wage. Yeah, you know, that's a good riff, Keith. It's a good place to close it. Uh, that was an excellent riff. I, I, I will say um, I just it baffles me in another front. Uh, both cars and uh, we're, we're, we're concentrating in these two industries today, car, the auto industry and the uh, Hollywood. I mean, these are traditionally America's great uh, exports. Think yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, Hollywood, you know, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. like this year, Barbie's huge. Just, mm -hmm. And it's like, why would you cut off at the knees? Like, how does that make sense? And th again, this, you know, the, the um biden has stayed out of the strike uh the 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 hollywood strike the screenwriters and the actors he has definitely not got it it seems like people regard the uaw strike as far more important and significant to the economy than mm -hmm. the hollywood strike i think they're both have huge consequences yeah, for the they're economy. Huge. what else is there i mean you know, what, you know the advertising this you know it's huge yeah you know i mean entertainment is like I'd like to see what percentage of the U.S. economy it is. It is huge. And you're right. It's one of the biggest exports, you know, um, of our country, you know, for, for good and for ill. But what's been, like I said, inspirational to me is just that the basics of organizing are the same, which is can you keep your people out? You know, um, it, it, you know, the tactics might change, the, you know, something might change here and there. But the basics of can you keep people out of the factories? 
and can you keep people from performing uh, in the um, entertainment business? And that has been inspirational to be, to be with these folks. And like I said, and the Starbucks and the Amazon, like I said, I've been on picket lines for all of them. And these folks are fantastic. And they, all they're saying is that we want a future. We want a future at a living wage with living benefits, with pensions that are good. And uh, they're sick of seeing these CEOs. I mean, what is the head of GM? You know, it used to be bad enough, like 360 times. What a, <laughs> yeah. It used to be like 10 or 20 times what a production worker makes. Now it's like 360, 500 times what their average production worker makes is what the CEO is making. I mean, it's, it's disgusting, you know, and it's getting back to the, not getting back, it hasn't really left, but it's getting back to these um, robber barons, you know, yeah. who controlled the, all the industries at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope uh, the Democratic Party is listening to Keith Kelleher. I know they listened <laughs> to him a lot back in the day when he was running a union, or excuse me, the president of a union. You were not running, it was the, the, the workers. Uh, and um, I, I do believe, going to closing with the politics of it, it's really inc incumbent upon Joe Biden and the Democrats mm -hmm. to yeah. show where their allegiances are. That's right. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but I think politically it's the right thing to do. Right, uh, exactly. As we head into the, the election season, and Donald Trump with his antics, you know, he just all he wants to do is siphon off enough votes mm -hmm. to win Michigan, or he come it close, and then he could just you know try to steal it like he did last time. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, try to steal Michigan. And right. The last people forget that. And Wisconsin and all the blue states, all the blue, the blue wall. Well, he literally was on the well, he was on the phone. I'm getting mm -hmm. making a different point. Donald Trump was on the phone with election officials in the state of Michigan. Right. Uh, just like he was on the phone with election officials in the state of Georgia mm -hmm. to get votes essentially thrown out, black votes, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, thrown out. So he could be the uh, you talk about the prevailing wage. He would then be the prevailing winner uh, mm -hmm. in the state. And uh, he was unsuccessful in that attempt to steal it. Uh, so now he's going to siphon off enough votes. That's all I need. Just enough of you to vote for me or just to have vote at all. Uh, so I think it's important for Joe Biden to give uh, people a reason to vote for him as opposed to just not being Donald Trump. You follow what I'm right. saying? So you take a stand with the workers. That's a reason. All right, Keith Kelleher, thank you very much for putting up with a few technical difficulties we had, mainly my fault. I think I pulled my plug out. I don't want to get the Always an away. honor to be on your show, Ben. Wow, I'll take damn. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll bring you back a lot sooner. <laughs> what your guy on the show the other day, uh, uh Michael Rabbit, who's running for committeeman in the uh 39th ward, or excuse oh, me, yeah. the 45th ward. So he, he was on uh I know I had him on last week. And then right after that, Jim Gardner announced he's not gonna run. That's the power of the Ben Jarovsky show, ladies. Right, that's right. <laughs> All right, you had him running. Adam. You and Michael. Yeah, me and Michael together. What a team. Uh, there's actually another candidate in that race, uh, so just oh. let everybody know. Yeah. All right, Keith Kelleher, thank you very much uh, for being on the show. Also, want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as always. Uh, and I think Keith agreed with me when I say, "Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Yeah, take it out, of, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody." <laughs> And remember, you can always find more Ben Jarofsky online. Head to chicagoreader.com, find columns, bonus interviews, and a whole lot more. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram, at Benny J Show, and like and subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.